Three, two, two one. one. Beautiful. Yay. Okay. <sighs> episode two. Episode two. Season two. Episode one. Season two. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> podcast where we share our thoughts about an album from top to bottom no skips and we give some minor notes that's right and that is kate griffin and that's gabby alvarez welcome if you're new here gabby is a music business professional i'm a songwriter and this entire second season of minor notes is dedicated to the discography of foo fighters yeah which uh really great that we're doing a second season i'm very excited and i love that we picked the foos because randomly just i love dave Grohl more than i know about that band <laughs> Same, actually. I would I would say I'm a fan of him, and I also like his band. That's how I would phrase it to people. Same, same. Yeah, I'm a fan of him. I'm I've listened to a lot more of Nirvana than I've listened to of the Foo Fighters. Oh, interesting. I'm familiar with every Foo Fighters single and like any video that came out before 2004. I've seen it. Yeah, because like that was the time, you know, when we were watching TRL and shit. Yeah, it totally was. And it's yeah, I would describe it the same way. I would actually just describe myself as like a bad fan. Like, I know that I like them. I know the singles. I've actually seen them in concert several times. Oh, cool. But now that I'm like actively critically listening, I'm learning so much. Yeah. And yeah. I started, after your recommendation, I started reading his uh, memoir, which I'm still not done with. But I just, I don't think I realized, like, the breadth of his career. Totally. All right. Well, let's jump in, I guess. I, maybe we should briefly R.I.P. Taylor. R.I.P. Taylor Hawkins. Yeah. Awful. Awful. Yes. And in, in a way, that's kind of, if you go back and listen to the last episode of season one, we kind of discussed it a little bit. We had a couple different options for this. Yeah. And that tragedy happened right around that time. And so we kind of thought maybe... Yeah, so I think the timing... Kind of pushed us in this direction a little bit, but just terrible. And the more I learn about the band, the sadder I feel about it. So it's going to be an emotional time. I agree. All right, let's jump in. Do you want to give us a little bit of history? Yes. So to understand Foo Fighters, you really have to understand Dave because they're one and the same, Mm -hmm. truthfully. Yeah. So... Dave Eric Grohl was born January 14th, 1969. He's 53 years old right now in Warren, Ohio. His mom was a teacher. Dad was a journalist. So humble beginnings. I believe he only has one sister. His parents divorced when he was seven and he was raised primarily by his mother in Virginia. When he was 12, he started playing guitar. And then at 13, he visited some family in Illinois and went to his first punk rock show. And that was kind of like it. He was like, oh man, this is it. Yeah. Realized he's not the only freak. Oh, totally. Like, it was his element. He was into it. And then while he was in high school, he played in several different bands. He was a guitarist for those bands. Um, And his first band was called Freak Baby, which I just think is really awesome. That sounds like a teenage band name. It's such a teenage band name. I love it. I love it. And like most high school bands, you know, people are in, people are out. And so out of necessity, he taught himself how to play drums for Freak Baby. So he's completely self-taught on the drums, which I just find to be like totally bizarre and crazy. I feel like drums has to be the hardest instrument to teach yourself. It's just crazy because it's all parts of your body are doing completely different things at the same time. Yes. It's it's insane. So the fact that he taught Mm -hmm. himself and is now kind of known, he got his career start as a drummer is just like amazing to me. All right. So school was not for him. He dropped out of high school (laughs) at 17. It's a good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. Just not, it's not for everyone. As a high school teacher, I can tell you it's not for everyone. (laughs) So he dropped out at 17 to play with a band called Scream. Scream is an American hardcore punk band from DC. They originally formed in 1981 and he took over drums in 1986. He actually lied about his age to get in the band. Yeah, didn't he tell them he was 17 or something? Well, he was 17, and I think he told them he was 21. And they, I right. think they knew, but they were just like, oh, that's he's right, too that's good. Right. They were just like, get in here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he played with them for four years. So from 1986 to 1990, and then they broke up, and he found himself in the Seattle area. Okay, so we're going to pause Dave right here, and now we have to get into Nirvana, because yes. it is important. Yeah. So... 
Nirvana, American rock band formed in Aberdeen, Washington in 1987, founded by Kurt Cobain and Chris Novoselic, who was the bass player. They actually had a handful of drummers. The most notable one I found was Chad Channing, who currently plays and sings in a band called Before Cars. I'm not familiar, but mm. his name came up. Um, and their first album came out in 89, and it was Bleach, right? So that happened. And then the two storylines come together. So in 1990, Dave, at 21 years old, signed on with Nirvana to Geffen Records. Mm. In September of 91, Nevermind was released. That was their big album. Mm. And then in September of 93, In Utero was released. So Nirvana only had three albums, and Dave was a part of the last two. Mm-hmm. And then the only other... Uh, Nirvana, it seems like not important information, but this does come in later. I only realized in researching this that Nirvana towards the end was a four piece. Really? Yes. I always thought they were a three piece with the t shirts and the posters and the documentaries, right? Mm -hmm, But mm -hmm. from 1993 to 94, a guitarist named Pat Smear, who was a guitarist for the Germs, that's like hardcore punk, like super intense, Mm -hmm. he joined them. And apparently, I mean, I think most people who are familiar with Kurt Cobain know he was not really comfortable with the fame, didn't really want to be a lead man. Yeah. He had been pushing for years to say we needed pressure and attention off himself. He wanted another person. So Pat Smear joined and everything was good for that year until it wasn't in April of 94. It was seven months after In Utero came out. Kurt Cobain killed himself. Terrible. And when that happened, Dave had said that he felt really numb and he just didn't want to play music anymore. Uh, he specifically didn't want to play the drums anymore. Mm. And at that time, Pat Smear decided to quit music altogether. He was like, I'm done. This is this is a little bit crazy. And then, six months later, in October of 1994, Dave took his favorite songs that he had written over the last four to five years that no one had really heard, and he decided to record them. Yes, and here's what I jump in. The album we're going to be talking about today is the Foo Fighters' debut album. It's self-titled was released July 4th, 1995. Dave was 26 years old at the time. He wrote and recorded the entire album himself with the exception of one song. There's an additional guitarist on one of the tracks. Mm-hmm. Uh, was produced by Barrett Jones at Robert Lang Studios in Washington in 94. And he said he recorded it for fun and it was a cathartic experience uh, after, kind of like after dealing with uh, Kurt's death. Mm. After he completed the recordings, he chose the name Foo Fighters to hide his identity Mm. uh, and he gave the cassettes to friends of his just to listen to and the cassettes made their way around they attracted interest from a bunch of record labels and he ended up signing to Capitol for the Foo Fighters project he recruited a full band to perform it live but all of the instruments recorded on this album are Dave basically running from room to room in a studio trying to get Isn't this that shit crazy? done. crazy? That is so it's, insane to me. It's wild that he did every, just like the amount of time that takes to do every single, because you have to then record every single track by itself Yeah, for that part. And, like, how many times did he, like, overlap guitar? And, like, it's just crazy. Totally insane. And just incredibly impressed at how many instruments this man can play that well. Like, it's just... And he can sing. Like, it's... it's, uh, (laughs) He's got it all. That's fucked up, frankly. I just it's just fucked up. Agreed. Uh, so signed with Capitol, recorded a few, uh, recruited a full band. Um, he toured this album a lot. There were six singles, two had music videos. Got really good reviews. He was praised for his songwriting and for the live performances, and it was commercially successful. It is still to this date the band's second best selling album in the U.S. Wow. Yeah, which is crazy. I did not know that. Yes. Wow. It also charted in the UK, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. So made him an international star by himself. By himself. Yeah. And like Um, literally by himself. Truly by himself, which is just, it's insane. It's a different, I'm not sure how much more impressed one can be with that. It's, It's absolutely wild that he did it all alone. Wow. But you have to think, too, like, after going through everything that he must have gone through after one of his best friends took their own life and, like, the high that they were all riding at that time. Mm. Like, Nirvana was the biggest band in the world. Right. And then, like, 
not only your friend dies, but you're seemingly it feels like your entire career is ripped out from under you. And the only thing you know how to do. Yes. So like how therapeutic for him to decide like, okay, I'm just going to rip on every single thing and just like get it all out. Right. I just, I really like that idea. Me too. All right. Shall we? Yeah. Track one. This is a call. Okay. This is a call. This was, I believe the first single came out June 19th, 1995. Yeah. I have a weird note about that. Actually, I had conflicting info on which was the first single. And when we get to the other song, I'll mention it. Okay. But in the research, I found that this was the first commercial single. Oh, there was an asterisk. I was like, oh, all right. So this is like to the masses. I got it. Okay, okay, okay. Okay. Um, well, Dave, as we already discussed, he wrote all the lyrics. He sang the vocals, played the drums, played guitar and bass on this song. And it was produced by Dave and Barrett Jones. I assume since this is in 95, everything must have been recorded to tape, right? We weren't doing digital yet. I'm thinking. I'm thinking. Okay. Because yeah. this sounds like it's recorded it totally to tape. It yeah. <laughs> like it has to be recorded to tape. I can't, I would not buy it if it was not. And they just put that effect on it. That seems dumb. No, no, no. But also makes it even more impressive that he recorded every fucking instrument on this album. Yeah, right, right. Because <laughs> yeah. that takes a lot of time. Oh my god, yeah. It's great song out the gate. Grainy, grungy, rocky. I like mm-hmm. it. It's kind of what I expect to hear out of a studio in Washington at that time when the grunge thing was happening. And I think what I love about the Foo Fighters is while I'm sure there is experimentation in later albums, this is the defining sound of this band. This is what they sound like. Totally. And yeah, I really dug it. I thought it was, uh, I love how it starts. And I think when you get that clean, twangy guitar and his double vocal right out the gate, that is so signature Foo Fighters. And to your point, like, this is what they're going to sound like. Yeah. So I thought that was really cool. I think when it kicks in, it's gritty, but I think it's catchier and easier to listen to than Nirvana. Yes. And we can kind of get into Nirvana a little bit later, but like personally, I recognize their significance and I do generally like the sound, but I can only do like two or three songs in a row and then I'm out. Like I can't really hang on for that long. Yeah. So I very much appreciate that, especially this song has just like a friendlier, easier to listen to vibe, but it still has the grit. Yeah. I think it's a fantastic opener. I think lyrically, I really love the repetition of like blank is pretty blank is good. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I just, it just like feels very natural, like easy to listen to. And then I looked up, there were two different websites that I referenced a lot. One was songfacts.com. And on Song Facts, uh, a lot of fans will uh, like have interviewed Dave or pull from interviews and put some information there. So according to Song Facts, Dave Grohl said the verses are nonsense. Um, it's something he did intentionally because uh, he had so much to express. He says other motivations for writing gobbledygook verses was to keep listeners from misinterpreting them. Because at this point, he knew a lot of people were going to say, is this about Kurt Cobain? Is this about Nirvana? These are questions he got immediately out the gate. And he wanted to kind of get ahead of that. Like, I'm actually just going to write nonsense because if I write anything else, people are going to assume that that's what this is about. Interesting. Yeah. So on the one hand, I totally understand that. As a songwriter, I cannot stand when artists admit that their songs don't mean anything. <laughs> so it just kind of made me sad because I like the song, but I guess yeah, that's okay. As I was going through this song and a lot of the songs and like reading along to the lyrics, I felt that about a lot of them. Like none of this kind of makes any sense. Yeah. Well, the other thing that's interesting too is... Then further down on that thread, I read that Dave was quoted as saying the chorus of this song is what's important. And he says, quote, it's just sort of like a little wave to all the people that I've ever played music with, people that I've been friends with, all my relationships, my family. It's a hello and in a way, a thank you. And yes, so that like, is okay, what well, I read about this song. Yeah, yeah. So I'm like, so it does mean something. But I guess just the verses. He was like, let me just get ideas out and then have the meaning be in the chorus. And then the only other tidbit I found was that he was actually married at this point in his life to Jennifer Youngblood. Mm. Uh, They got married in the summer of 94. Just sick last name, by the way. Youngblood. Great last name. Yeah. And while they were on their honeymoon in Dublin, he wrote this in the bathroom. I was like, okay, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah, I I dig this one. I think um, I echo everything that you say. And I'm 
excited to get into the other tracks because I have I found some tidbits about what some Ooh. songs are about. Oh, better, even better. Okay, track two. I'll stick around. Uh, this was the second single, September fourth, nineteen ninety five. Hmm. You go first because I have the tea. Okay, great, great. I think the intro and the chorus to this song are very Nirvana. Vocally, instrumentally, it sounds very much like someone from that band wrote this song. Mm. Doesn't mean I don't like it, but to me, it's like a way clearer tie. I think the verses, though, are leaning more toward his signature style, that kind of floaty business. The chorus of this song was actually included in a Weird Al Yankovic compilation. Really? Yes, every once in a while he would put out a polka, and this was his alternative polka in 1996. And I actually think that's where I heard this song first, because... Uh, not even a guilty pleasure. I love me some Weird Al Yankovic. You love Weird Al. <laughs> That's really funny. I used to buy his albums all the time. <laughs> and I remember this was part of it. And I was like, oh, man. That's really funny. It's so funny. And you know you made it when Weird Al's like, hey, can I borrow this real quick? And then some tidbits I found. Another site um, I used was foofighters.fandom.com. This song was believed to be written about, and this might be your tea, uh, Courtney Love. He has confirmed it. It is about her. Oh, he has confirmed it. Okay, good to know. Fucking hates her. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I do think fairly recently there was some reconciliation. I haven't gotten that far in my research, but I know it was was bad initially. I think they've made their peace now, but when he wrote this, he was not a fan of hers. Mm. And he wouldn't... Everyone asked him for years if this was about her, and he would not say so. Because he's a classy dude. Yeah, and then like 15 years after, he was just like, yes, it's about her. Yes, it is. Obviously, it's about her. My note aside from that is that this song is very emo. So emo. Like very emo. Yeah. The angst, the anger, like the lyrical structure. It it just, I was like, okay, cool. I like this one. (laughs) I I like this one a lot. And I think uh, one of my favorite lyrics in general, but also to me, which makes it very clearly about Courtney Love is it says, how could it be I'm the only one who sees your rehearsed insanity? I still refuse all the methods you've abused. It's all right. If you're confused, let me be. Right on. And I was like, oh, obviously. (laughs) Yeah, she's she was at least a little psychotic. Oh, man. It is what it is. It is what it is. All right. Track three. Big me. What can you tell me? This was the fourth single. February 25th, 1996. I really love this song. I I really love that it has like a retro vibe. It kind of makes me think of the Beatles with the chord progression and the melodies. Interesting. Yeah, I got that. And I'm personally not a huge Beatles fan, but I do like this. So I thought that was kind of interesting. It's not nearly as aggressive as the previous two songs. So I think it's really well placed in the track listing. Yeah. And I think this one in particular shows his emergence as like an independent from the Nirvana sound. Like this is really where it's like we're seriously moving from that. Yes. And then according to songfacts.com, this was the Mentos video. Yeah. It was like a Mentos commercial. Yeah, thing. the Mentos commercial, which it's like so, everyone so loves. Good. It's so good. <laughs> and according to Dave, he was quoted as saying the song is girl meets boy, boy falls in lo- love, girl tells him to F off. Right on. I I love your Beatles reference. I didn't really hear that in there. I felt like this song was full Weezer. I oh. heard total Weezer huh. in here. Something about the guitar like effect that is being used. Okay. And it just like the, the cadence of this song gave me lots of Weezer vibes. Not bad. Not a bad thing. So uh, to briefly, I think you mentioned this on the previous track. I'll stick around uh, that this that song was like very not Nirvana. And I think that Dave, while he is a punk rocker, the bro loves pop music. Oh, so, yeah. Like, loves it. So I think that's very evident in, like, everything that he makes. There's, like, a degree of, I don't want to say cheese. Yeah. But, like, just it's softer. It's, like, e- more easy for regular people, you know, not yes. non, non-punkers to listen to. And it's natural. He's not doing that on purpose. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, regarding the Mentos video, the band could not play this song and they stopped playing it for about a decade because people would throw Mentos hard candies at them on stage. <laughs> so Which they would stopped be playing painful. it. <laughs> yeah. Hurts a lot. That was why but they it's stopped. It's like a they were brick. Like, yeah. The, that shit is hard. Like, don't do that. <laughs> 
Why? He's quoted as saying, those things, things are like pebbles. They hurt. (laughs) Oh, wow. What a weird thing to do. To express your love by pelting these hard-ass candies at this band. At your at a band that you paid money to see. Yeah, what are you trying to do? That's, How awful. So they're just like, you know what? Sorry, guys, we're just not going to play it. We're not going to play this song anymore because you guys are douchebags. <laughs> so, wow. yeah, that, that I really enjoyed that fact. That's so funny. That's hilarious. <laughs> All right, track four, Alone Plus Easy Target. I assume you read it as plus. Uh... Well, in the course, he's saying alone and easy target. So I read it as and, but it could be either way. I'll give him and, but like... This was before texting. Use an ampersand. Like, what yeah. are you doing? <laughs> so I really love the weight of this song. To me, I, I wrote that it feels like a heavy downer. Mm. This one, it kind of made me sad, but it was heavy, but I liked it. I do prefer the chorus to the verses. I find myself kind of waiting for it. I do think the chorus leans a little bit more Nirvana. And I read on songmeanings.com there are many fan theories that this song is about how toward the end of Nirvana, Dave might have been unhappy and he felt ganged up on by Kurt and Chris. I don't know how true that is, but if you listen to the song with that in mind, you kind of hear it. Yeah, I, I read that same thing, and I think it is true. I, it's, so appar- it's apparently about Kurt, I guess, when he at the later end of the band's whatever career, mm-hmm. when he was doing more drugs and, you know, that he was, like, kind of picking on Dave and, like, not happy with his drumming and criticizing it. So, mm. I, and I think, like, because he wrote this, maybe he wrote it while he was still in the band, and, like, that's why it's like this. That's, but. Yeah, totally possible. Totally possible. Yeah. And one of the lines that I pulled that kind of supports this was, head is on, I want out, I'm alone and an easy target, metronome, I want out, mm-hmm. I'm alone and an easy target. And the metronome is, like, he's the timekeeper. That's it, yeah. his role. That's his job. So... If that is the case, I actually enjoy the song a lot more than having that idea of, like, the lyrics are gobbledygook, they don't mean anything. I think this one does mean something. Yeah, um, I think overall, uh, it's okay. This song was okay to me. It didn't Mm -hmm. really stand out or stick and totally like how you just wait for the chorus. Yeah. Same. And I just, like, wasn't too into it. It's okay. I don't believe there is a bad song on this album. This song is just doesn't do anything for me. We might disagree, but, Mm, but, mm. (laughs) but I agree. Mm. This one, it's good, but it's not a standout. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Track five. Good grief. Good grief. I love this song. I love that it's immediate energy. Mm -hmm. I love that the vocal melody and the lead guitar are like pretty and kind of mainstream, almost poppy juxtaposed Mm. with the aggressive pace of the song. This one just jumps out. I just love the song. I love the guitar riff. The guitar riff is so good. It's so good. It's so good. And from songmeetings.com, I'm not a big fan of the Pixies. I'm not super familiar with their work, but... I know Doolittle. That's the only album I know. Yeah, I don't really... They don't do it for me, which a lot of people hate me for, but like, sorry, can't help it. But they have a song called Tony's Theme, and there have been comparisons between this song and Tony's Theme in terms of drum parts and guitar riffs, the idea that the vocals repeated... I did listen to Tony's theme because I was like, well, let me hear it. Like, let me compare. And I I can hear the influence. I definitely think this is an inspiration situation, not at all a ripoff situation. Yeah. But I also feel like I just really enjoy the way Dave is doing it much better than the way that the Pixies are doing it. And fun fact, I found that the chords of this song are the exact same chords as Smells Like Teen Spirit. They're just in a different order. Cool. That was kind of cool. And so some people believe that this is somehow dedicated to Kurt. Again, they're constantly trying to do that. I don't think it. I don't think so. And the only lyric I found that like might possibly reference him is, quote, always the blues and a delicate smile. Okay. And I was like, okay, maybe. But that's one line out of an entire song. Like, I do not think this is about Kurt. I yeah, wrong, I, didn't, I didn't get that vibe either. Um, like I said, I love the guitar riff in this song. Yeah. And there's something that's very rock and roll and hilarious that is Dave Grohl enough to just have a chorus that repeats, I hate it over and over and over. Oh my God, again. I like, love it. it. I just love it so much. My emo, angsty high school self. It's so good. <laughs> 
I'm like, yes. Like, yes. yes. Simple and to the point. Done. Yes. I love it. <laughs> yeah. I think it's perfect. And that like lit chorus of just three words is also very punk rock in a way mm-hmm. that's very tongue in cheek for Dave to decide to do that. And I don't yeah. think any of that was really intentional, really. I don't think he has that much foresight. I think this stuff just comes out of him, but yeah. it's pretty rad. I agree. I think he thinks this sounds cool. And then he does it. Yes. And he doesn't overthink yes. it. Yes. All right, cool. Track six, floaty. I like that the bass is constant underneath the quote unquote floaty guitars. Like I feel mm-hmm. like the title of the song describes the sounds happening. I do love that there's a little bit of a time change between the verses and the instrumental parts. I feel like the song needs it. Yeah. Overall this is not a favorite of mine. Same. I do not love the lyrics. I do kind of like that it's different. I like that he went somewhere else. It feels experimental, so I can appreciate that. But I feel like it does not kind of fit with all the other tracks on this album. It's like a weirdo to me. Yeah, I totally agree. I think like, while I dug it, and it was very dreamy sounding, which Mm -hmm. I... I enjoyed, but it didn't go over a line into like, oh, this is great. And I want to play this again. It it was listenable and like, Mm -hmm. you know, it didn't, wasn't painful, but I have no desire to repeat. It's fine. Filler. I think a lot of people feel that way too, because James and I were actually, uh, we were doing some house stuff and we were listening to this record again, just because he's a big fan. And this song came on and we listened to it the whole way through. And he goes, I think that's the first time I ever listened to it the, the whole way through. I always skip this song. And I was yeah, like, oh, it's, interesting. It's a whatever song. And I hadn't told him how I felt about it. So for him to just say that, I was like, okay, I feel a little validated in that. Yeah. 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 It's very, um, I, it, it's not, it's in the middle for a reason. It's skippable. So true. So true. can forget about it. All right. Track seven, the best name track on this album, <laughs> Weenie Beanie. Yeah. Agreed on best title. I do not like this song. It, it does have a Queens of the Stone Age sound, which I'm into. I'm into Queens of the Stone Age. I really am into the energy, but we have lost all of the melodic, you know, pop-leaning, listener-friendly yeah. stuff. Um, I have no idea what he's saying. I have no I idea really what's happening. Like it. Oh, no, really? Well, I think it sounds okay, cool. Okay. And I think it, it acts as kind of a palate cleanser on purpose. Okay. And this is just like punk rock mess. Like, it's just like... It reminded me of brand new, like, The Devil and God is Raging Inside Me album, where, like, there's, like, weird extended jam sessions on it, and, like, a lot of distorted vocals, and it kind of felt like a mesh of a bunch of genres, which I really liked. Interesting. I I do not like that I cannot understand the lyrics, but... Like, even without that, I thought this song was still a fucking vibe. It's very grungy, but modern at the same time. I really enjoyed it. And it's actually named after a fast food chain that does not exist anymore. There's only one left, and it's in Arlington, Virginia. Ah, I did know that. That was one of my fun facts, which I just think is really funny. I'm like, that's cool. But then a a less fun fun fact from songfacts.com. Apparently, he took a lot of heat. There's a line in the song uh, where he describes, I believe himself, as a one-shot nothing. And a lot of people thought that was a reference to Kurt, again, always bringing up Kurt and his suicide. But Dave wrote the song in 91, long before Cobain's death. I can see why the public might make that assumption. I just, at this point, feel kind of bad for him that at this point in his career, every move he's making is being compared to or connected to Nirvana in some way. I feel like that's like super unfair to do to a musician, but... Mm. I don't know. Like, that must have been a bummer for him, for people to make that correlation. That's the public, though. Like, the public is fucking stupid. And all they want to do is speculate, you know? Yeah, they want to make it interesting for themselves because it has to be deeper than... It's this fucking stupid song about a hot dog stand. Like, that's what Right, it's about a hot dog stand. And one shot nothing is like a... I wouldn't say it's a common phrase, but I've heard it before. Like, you know what it means when he says that. He's not referencing that horrible thing. I don't know. It just bothered me, but must have been a bummer yeah i agree but i really like this one wow okay i thought it was fun all right track eight. Oh george okay oh george uh, again i hear the beatles i hear the beatles again i don't and i read that really fact, i hear this it is apparently like a tribute to george harrison 
Yeah, well, what's interesting is uh, he named it Oh George as a tribute to George Harrison, who is his favorite Beatle. I wonder how Paul feels about that. Um, and the guitar riff is... <laughs> to be fair, I think George is also Paul's favorite Beatle. <laughs> oh, okay, there you go, there you go. So perfect. It's based off a riff on the Beatles song called Something. I actually mm-hmm. did not go back to listen to something. Again, I'm not a Beatles fan. I should have because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not totally sure. Uh, but he did say the title of the song is a tribute to him, but the song itself is not about George Harrison. The lyrics are not about him. So maybe it was just musically. Mm. It's not a favorite for me. I don't know. I didn't really have much to say about it other than that Beatles connection. It's just not a fave. Same. That was like uh, what I found out. And I don't hear... So I know the song something. And I don't hear the riff in this song at all. Interesting. So I didn't make that connection. And I thought it was kind of a snoozer. It's a little bit of a snooze. A little bit of a snooze. Again, for me. somewhere in the middle, so maybe on purpose. All right, track nine, For All the Cows. This is the only track on this album that has another guitarist. Greg Diuli is on it. He was in a band called The Afghan Wings, and okay. he was in the studio that day, and Dave just kind of gave him a guitar, and he started to play on the track. Is it this one? Maybe I messed my notes up. I have it that he is on Ecstatic. The next song. Um, I have him on the cow song. Let's Google real quick. Let me. Let's give him both. I mean, I'd love to give him more. So Wiki is telling me it's ecstatic, and Genius and Song Facts are telling me it's for all the cows. Really? Yeah. Interesting. So let's give him both. Greg is on track nine and ten. We don't know. We don't know. All right. Well, he's in here somewhere. So he's for in all here the cows. Somewhere. Uh, third single, November 21st, 1995. This was a single? It was a single, which really surprised me. Totally surprised me. This song me. is weird as fuck. It's so weird. Uh, you know what's strange is I'm glad I had to listen to it all the way through because similar to Floaty, I think I had heard this song before, but I just skipped it. Like, I thought it was a snoozer. I actually really do love the juxtaposition of, like, the jazzy, bluesy verse and then mm. the big chorus. It should feel like two different songs, but for some reason it doesn't. Like, this works. Like, the guitar is very twangy, but the song is not twangy. Not twangy. I don't know why it works. I put that at this point in the album, I feel like it's a really good spot because we've had a little bit of everything so far, and I feel like this Mm. is both things. Yeah. And then, according to songmeetings.com, they think, fans think the song is just kind of about how uh, people are willing to compromise who they are for money. It's kind of a swipe at record executives. He's referring mm. to himself as a cash cow. So I thought that was kind of a cool take. Uh, but what a weird song. So weird. Weird song. It gave me, I wrote, this song is silly as fuck. What is even happening? <laughs> Silly is a very good way to describe it. It's very silly. It gave me vibes, not musically or instrumentally in any way, just like the the idea of this song kind of reminded yeah. me of I Am The Walrus by The Beatles in the way, and that it yes. doesn't really make a lot of sense. Yeah. It's just weird. It's just a creation. Yeah, and I really like that. It felt like very experimental, and like I feel like if any band now try to put a song like this on their commercial album, their label would say no. Oh, cor- oh no. No, no, no. It wouldn't see the light of day. It would be a B-side, live only. Totally. Yeah. Totally. And oh, I'll, I think only in the mid-90s could a song like this get put on a record. Agree. Yeah, it was the timing. It was the timing. It was the timing. Uh, but I really enjoyed it. I thought it was very strange. Strange, but enjoyable. Yeah. Strange in a good way. Uh, track 10, Ecstatic. I really like the lyrical pattern of this song. Uh, he kind of breaks it down where you have three rhymes and then a different word. So in one of the verses, it ends, you do blue rewarded, and then uh, scene be me ordered. And there's just something like when you're writing lyrics and you like align yourself with like, okay, this is the pattern I'm going to, to do. It's hard. It makes it really hard to find the right words and say the right thing. And I just think, like, it's hard enough to find two words that rhyme and mean something. But to do it that way, like, three and then a weirdo, three and then a weirdo, I just thought it was really interesting. I think it's a good mix of, you know, melodic Dave with heavier music, 
Kind of a background song for me. Still good. This, according to Reddit, is the least performed song off this album. It was written after Kurt's death. A lot of these songs were written before. This one was afterward. Um, and then this was the one where I had uh, Greg Julian. So either he's here. Sure, yeah. And then two quotes. I have one from Dave and one from Greg. So Dave says, a song like Ecstatic is the only way I can express grief or happiness. I was like, whoa. So this song means a lot to him. Okay. That's very interesting. I didn't know that he said that. So I felt like while there is a definite influence of the grunge sound on this album, Mm -hmm. I strongly feel that most of the songs on here feel like intentional departures Mm. from that genre. Sure. Even though there's a little bit of influence in all the tracks, it's this is not a grunge album in any way. I agree. Though... While I think that about most of these songs, this song in particular feels like an intentional callback to grunge. And now knowing that it was written after Kurt's death makes way more sense. Mm. I also feel like the way he's singing, where it's almost like like his voice is lower, he's kind of whispering, is mm. very Cobain. Mm, yeah. So yeah. I, I, I think this is like an intentional, as Nirvana-esque song as he could make for this album which is so funny because i do hear that but i also feel like some of the earlier songs sound more nirvana-ish yes i think this song sounds more kurt it's kurt okay okay. very much like kurt Kurt. specific yeah and then the quote i have from greg kind of speaks to what we were saying about how insane it is that he did this whole album himself uh the quote says uh he'd do a whole song in about 40 minutes. I was completely fascinated by it. He could do it because he has perfect time. He'd lay down a, dr- a perfect drum beat and work off that. He'd play drums, he'd run out, play bass, and then put two guitar layers over the top and sing it. I was just watching him record, and then he asked me if I wanted to play. I didn't even get out of my chair. He just handed me a guitar. So I imagine that being in a studio with Dave is like being with children who have ADD. Just like <laughs> running around, yeah. and everyone is touching everything everything and it just seems like a chaos yeah yeah that's what it sounds like yeah but it works it works yeah thank god his mom didn't get him a ritalin prescription or he wouldn't you know how and i just keep going back to like his mother was a teacher and for him to drop out like i'm sure she had complicated feelings but she's also she probably knew like this kid's not gonna have a regular job yeah, and I think that that what I, that's the vibe that I got while I was reading the memoir is that because his mom was a teacher, she was like, "Yeah, you're not good at school." Yeah, <laughs> we're not, not going to force this. That. Yeah, 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 yeah. And similar how you said before, some kids are not good at school. Oh no way, man. No yeah, way. if that was your kid and your kid was like, "I think I'm going to drop out," you'd be like, "Yeah, yeah, I think go you get, should." Go get your yeah. GED. Don't do this. Don't do this to yourself. Right. Right. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, all right. Track eleven. Watershed. Okay. So, so my biggest note on this. Well, okay. Let me start at the beginning. So, for so- from songfacts.com, Dave Grohl has admitted that most of the lyrics make no sense. They have no real yes. meaning. Yes. He said it is inspired by his love of hardcore and old school punk rock. I hear punk rock on this more than anything else. This one is like, oh, obviously. This song is so, it's punk as fuck. And n- yes, I wrote, it's punk as fuck in that none of the lyrics make any sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. And apparently he does reference a couple of his favorite old school punk bands, uh, Black widow and flowerhead cool one commenter said that he he knows that dave has said this song is about nothing but this person thinks it might actually um tie to his hatred for you know the recording industry kind of like all the cows like how you know because he references trouble with the contract things like that and since this is my favorite fact of this whole album since this song is so fast and angry dave Grohl decided uh to do it as a joke acoustically uh he played it live but he changed all of the lyrics and he sang it as if he were fred schneider of the b-52s shut the fuck it up. is a rare version I looked it up on YouTube and I almost wet my pants, Gabby. You have to send it to me. He is a creative genius. And now I can't listen to the original version. I have to listen to that version because it's hilarious. And apparently he's just like riffing the whole time, making it up as he goes. I love that he did that, but also makes sense because the Foo Fighters recently did like an entire cover album to uh, was it ABBA? I think it was ABBA. Oh, you're right, they did. Or the Bee Gees. Or the Bee Gees. Gees, They did an entire entire album of covers. So that sounds like Dave. Uh, He just sounds like a whack 
job. Just like a total fun weirdo. And I, I love the energy of this song. I, but now that I heard... Oh, and he calls that version Water Fred. <laughs> but now that I've heard that version, like I can't love this this one. I like that one better. But I, I will I send totally it to you. It. And I recommend all listeners to YouTube it because it will make your day. I will... I, yeah, I'm eager to check it out. I did... Um, copy some lyrics that I think are really funny. Uh, and I think this is the chorus, but this is the last one. I'm so pissed at all the disc jam. Pissed about the five ham. What? What is that? <laughs> pissed about the green state. What is all what of is that? that? <laughs> he probably doesn't the, know. He, I'm pissed about the disc jam. Like, it could be music, disc jam, and green state, but what's five ham? What's five ham? It's a cool line, though. Yeah. <laughs> I wish it made sense. Right, it right. make any sense. He probably doesn't even know. No, he has no idea. No. Um, all right, track 12, at the very end, Exhausted, <laughs> is the name of the song. Yes, yes. So this was that song where I was saying there was another first single, and I was confused. So according to Wikipedia, this was the band's first single, uh, single released ahead of their album, and it was only issued as a promotional single. So I guess there's a difference between promotional and commercial single. Yeah. It was pressed onto a 12-inch vinyl. The song is notable for being their first track released to the public when it premiered on January 8th, 95 on Eddie Vedder's Self-Pollution Radio Broadcast. Cool. So I thought that was cool. Um, as far as my opinion, I think the intense distortion and the fuzz makes it a little bit hard for me to listen to this. It kind of like hurts my ears. Maybe I'm just getting old. It seems sorrowful, but it's really hard to hear what he's saying. So I like I don't really know mm -hmm. what's going on. I do think the guitar that comes in after the second verse, it kind of has like a lead uh, melodic situation going on. And it's totally essential because otherwise the song just like doesn't work. Yeah. It, otherwise, it's just noise. Uh, yeah, noise. Right. And I, I heard I read that they used to end their sets with this song, which makes sense because they would just let it be like a big distortion ring out mess, you know, and then you like walk off the stage. Yeah, all yeah, cool. Yeah. I did look up all the cool. lyrics. Yeah, all cool. You're like, F this, I'm done. I do think the lyrics are kind of sad. I struggled with whether they were deeply poetic or complete nonsense. And then I wrote, but maybe that's the beauty of it. Like, maybe that's what makes the song beautiful. Like, I don't know if it means yes. something important or if it's nonsense. And then the lyric that I wrote was, I'm not around that much running, exhausted and lost. If it could be undone, will it have costed? It's taught and lost. And I was just like, is this meaningful or is this nothing? Like, I don't know. I don't think it's meaningful. Okay. <laughs> I don't think so. I think that... I think Dave Grohl made exhausting instrumental choices and named a song about it. Maybe. I think that's what happened. Right. The, the amount of static definitely makes this song very hard to listen to. Yeah. And it's not even, like, because it's hard to understand what he's saying. It's just hard to hear it. Yeah. Period. Yeah. It's hard to hear the instruments and stuff. But that buzzing effect actually makes it kind of exhausting to listen to. Yeah. So I kind of feel like that must have been an intentional production choice. It's like which meta. just is... It's so fucking funny. Yeah. <laughs> fucking Dave. Yeah. And I think the length is also exhausting. It's way too long. It's like a five and a half minute song. Yeah. Five minutes and 20 seconds, I think. And I... Yeah. But yeah, it's it's very exhausting. I think it's fine for a closer because it has like all that distortion and stuff. Yeah. And, and the, the outro is like shredding and, and, and shit. But like, it's all right. Yeah. It's, a, it's good for a closer and it serves its purpose, but it's not... I don't want to listen to it again. Right, 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 right. I would like to see it live where that static is not going to be over the entire thing. I think it would sound good. Yeah. But I don't want to hear this recording ever again. Yeah, similar. Yeah. All right. Well, we did it. We did it. This was so fun. This was good. What? What's your favorite? Favorite is Good Grief. Like, to me, what nothing else comes close. I just love that song so much. It's a good one. I, I went with Big Me as my favorite. Big Me's like a good... Uh, vibes a lot. Yeah, Big Me. And Big Me is a huge fan favorite. In yeah. every show I've seen them, he includes Big Me, and people lose it. People lose their minds. Yeah. yeah. It's a fucking great song. It has to be so fun live, just like the guitar parts are super fun. Yeah. Underdog? For all the cows. 
what a weird thing. And because I listened to it and I was like, ew, this song's weird. And then I found myself repeating it over and over. I was like, this got to be my underdog. Because I think I like this, but I shouldn't like it. Mine's weenie beanie. <laughs> I mean, okay, I can see that. I can see that. <laughs> it's weird and I really like it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what was your least? I think I know. So my least was weenie beanie. But as we talked about Exhausted, I was like, oh, yeah, that was pretty bad. So now I'm intrigued by your feedback on Weenie Beanie. I might go back to re-listen. Or for me, it could be a tie. Um, I think maybe I like the energy of Weenie Beanie better than Exhausted. So maybe Exhausted is my least favorite. I think I struggle with, like, is Exhausted my least favorite because it's hard? Or is Floaty my least favorite because it's unnecessary? Yeah, but at least I feel like in Floaty there's a melody. Where I'm like, all right, even if I don't love the melody, I can hear it and it's here. Whereas Weenie Beanie and Exhausted, I'm like, am I in a tunnel? Like, what's happening? I don't know what's happening. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, look, Weenie Beanie should be your favorite, so you're going to have to go back. (laughs) I listen. That's homework I'll do. I could do that. Reassess. Yeah. That's what you should do. Um, Well, how do we feel? All right. So closing thoughts. As a musician, I find this album to just be fascinating because Mm. when I write songs and I bring them to the band, I will often come up with like the structure and the melody and the lyric idea. And then once everyone hears it and puts their touch on it, it's completely different. Like I have listened to songs we've recorded and then I go back and I listen to the demo that I sent uh, two years before. It's a completely different song. Mm. And I just find it amazing that he could hear all of the parts for all of these songs and do it himself. Like I just find that to be insane. Yeah. I just think it's crazy. I've never gone to practice and been like, I want the drums to sound like this. And then when the drummer does do something, in my mind, I'm like, oh my God, I never would have thought of that. Like, that's crazy. I love that so much. So I just think it's such an amazing, uh, like, product of history of this person's Mm -hmm. life. His genius, really. Whether you like the songs or not, like, this is creative genius happening. Yes. And while I think, like, There's nothing really about this music style that's groundbreaking Mm -hmm. in any way. Mm -hmm. It's not like he revolutionized anything. Sure. But I think to echo what what you've just said, it is just his creativity kind of exploding out at you and being recorded to tape and like given to us to listen to. But he must have been a terror. A terror. Oh my God. And in school, his poor teacher. Uh, <laughs> a terror. Truly, like, you can't be this talented and be this good at so many things without being a little intolerable in regular ways. Totally. And you know what's funny? It's funny you say that because as you're saying, I'm thinking, like, who else is like that? Another musician, creative genius I adore, Ben Folds, he's been married four mm. or five times. Like, it has to he's be. He's a psycho. And I think he has said, like, I'm insane. Like, the fact that anyone's willing to marry me is a win for me. So I think you can't have that normalcy when you're this creative. Like, you just can't. You can't have it. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I agree. I think, like, uh, being... This is the first full Foo Fighters album I've listened to. I haven't listened to the the following ones yet. Oh, my God. I'm so excited. I'm excited. But I think um, it's established a very nice framework for what this band is to become. Mm -hmm. And I think I said it about the second or third track that this is the Foo Fighters sound. Yeah. And to have... The fact that he built it in 1995 and established that sound in 1995 and still continues to to make it work in a way that feels new yeah. to his fans so they don't get bored to now mm-hmm. is just insane. It's insane that he's been doing, what is this, 20 years? Oh my gosh. It's so... It's crazy. Like over 20 years, like this... Some this sound that he made by himself. All alone. Like, I just can't think of what's going on in his brain. Just ideas all the time and hearing things Dude, all the time. And the thing is, like, I'll listen to interviews with him and he seems completely normal. He does. He really does. And 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 this, I don't know where this would appear in the, in the podcast later. I read somewhere that he stopped doing real drugs. I think he was, like, 17 or 20. 20 at the max. 
you know, and the life he had, there were drugs everywhere. And at that, at that age, he was like, it's got, like, it will kill me. Like, it's going to mess me up. I have to stop now. So for him to be yeah. that young and live this rock and roll life and have the foresight of like, I'm already off the, the wagon. Like, I'm already insane. Like, I can't also yeah. do this. Well, but yeah, and by the time he was in Nirvana, like, he was not doing drugs. No, he was like, I, 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 like, I'll implode. Weed, I think, every now and sure, then sure, was sure, the sure. only yeah. thing. But, like, he, which is just, it's, it's pretty wild because at that time, every musician in that world was doing lots of drugs. And was, oh, my God. Like, that, that's just the vibe yeah. that happens. And I think. That he looked at all that shit happening and said, I'm not going to fuck it up for myself. Right. Right. Because the pressure that you have to feel like being that young and being in a green room with fucking Eddie Vedder. With your heroes, with your contemporaries, with with these people you've idolized. Yes. But speaking of uh, your idols and your heroes, something I forgot to mention is during the, uh, I believe he recorded this album in a week. Mm -hmm. And in the middle of that week, he got a phone call from uh, Tom Petty's people to play drums for them on SNL. Yes. So yeah. he was already being recognized for his skill. He did it. He played the show. You can look up footage of it. It actually, to me, looks really funny because all of the guys are like older and he's drumming and he's got his arms like going crazy. He just looks like he's having the best time. He drums like Animal from the Muppets. Like, yes, he does. <laughs> he totally does like Animal. And after that performance, they asked him to join. They were like, Tom Petty wants you in. Yes. And he said no. And he said no because he didn't want to play the drums anymore. Because of Yeah, but I think he away. also knew, like, I've got this creative thing I need to satisfy. And I would imagine, I mean, obviously, I don't know from experience. I would imagine if you join Tom Petty's band, it's Tom Petty's way or the highway. Like, you're going to play oh, the yeah. songs the way he wrote the songs. Little input. And I just think, like, to be that young and be like, holy moly, like, I could drum for this amazing idol of mine forever. Yeah. Or I could risk it and do my own thing. And he did his own thing and it worked. And it's just like, you got balls, man. It's it's just bananas. And I think, like, a lot of what I'm getting out of as I'm reading his memoir is he... He was just really self-assured at a very young age, but didn't recognize that that's what he was. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Anyway, how many albums do we have for the foos? Is it nine or ten? I want to say nine. Okay. I want to say nine. We should, I feel like we should consider, at least, we should talk about the Bee Gees album as well. Uh, hey, throw it in. I would love to hear it. Okay, great. It's a ten. <laughs> if, that, if that wasn't included, ten, ten now. <laughs> ten Please. now. Great, beautiful. I can't wait. I really want to talk about that one. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> All right, well, it's been real. Yeah, so much fun. The next one is The Color and the Shape. Yes, which I think is the biggest one. Maybe, it may be. And I got a lot of juice about the band members and and everything. I'm very excited about that episode. Yeah, it'll be fun. All right, well. Cool. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks to the band Above the Moon for writing and recording our theme song. You can find them on Instagram at Above the Moon Music or on their website, AboveTheMoonMusic.com. If you enjoyed listening, give us a follow or subscribe on your favorite platform. And if you really enjoyed listening, leave us a like, rate us, or review us so more people can find us. You can keep up with news about new episodes on Instagram at Minor Notes Podcast or email us, MinorNotesPodcast at gmail.com. Minor Notes is a finally cool production. Next week, we'll be discussing the Foo Fighters' second album, The Color and the Shape, with freelance music writer and creator and host of the blog and podcast, The Tape Deck, Rob Mora. Oh.